Hi and welcome to Klokriketeatans Shakespeare podcast. Today's episode is a live recording from our International Shakespeare Symposium earlier this fall, and we're gonna hear the stage director of Julius Caesar, Karl Alm, talk about the themes that interest and excite him in this play from a director's point of view. He's gonna open up the dramatic construction of the play and talk about the concept of time in Shakespeare's work and about the humor that can be found between the lines. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Shakespeare podcast with director Karl Alm. My name is Karl Alm. I've been working at Klokrike Theater now for a few years, primarily as an actor. And later on this autumn, as Dan said, I will be directing a production of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which we will open on Friday the 13th, which seemed a very good date for this opening, <laughs> considering the material. So my background is that I have uh, graduated from the Theatre Academy of Finland some 10 years ago and during that time I did spend some time at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art and the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama now known as the Royal Scottish Conservatory and getting quite familiar with the British way of looking at uh, Shakespeare and how he is performed through the lens of an actor. Now um, today I was asked to present some thoughts on not only William Shakespeare, but the play Julius Caesar. And I shall touch on some of the ideas, themes that interest me and excite me and from a, a director's point of view, form some of the base of this upcoming production that we will soon start the last rehearsal block of. So, um, one, of the interesting things about Julius Caesar, to me, is the dramatic construction of the material. Because it's not entirely clear who actually is the main character of the play as it's written. Is it Caesar, who actually appears only in six scenes before he is killed? Is it Brutus, who has over twice as many lines? Is it Cassius, who initially is very influential in starting the conspiracy? Or could the main character even be Mark Anthony, who in Act 3 comes and steals the show? Now, depending on who you ask, and it seems at least historically, this unclarity, this lack of sort of a Hamlet figure, has been considered a flaw of writing. But I actually find it very interesting. And this is because I think that not one of these characters actually could exist without the other. Now, without Caesar, there could be no Cassius to be jealous of the narrative that Caesar has created around his own persona. There could be no Brutus that has to be pushed into action, and so on and so on. To me, it's almost like we are viewing these historical events from a number of different persons' perspective. Now, to me, this is what Shakespeare has written. And uh, to me, it also seems that by lining the events up in the order that he does, 
as well as sustaining some kind of ambig ambiguity as to who this main character is or can be interpreted to be, Shakespeare creates a story that actually contains many narratives um, where there is actually a competition for whose narrative is the main one. Whose side of the story do we actually follow or do we choose to follow? And I think that the combination of the characters that we find in Julius Caesar adds to this further, because when you look at it, it's a very close-knit web of social relations wherein each tries to influence the other, and the interdependence between all of these characters is actually quite hard to understand or decipher. As most of the characters in themselves are independent subjects, the actions they take do not only, uh, are not only isolated events or incidents, but they all carry a social re relevance and add something to the whole. So in a sense, judging the outcome of the play, and with the risk of perhaps being oversimplifying, it seems to me that bad management in ancient times, in the Renaissance period, as well as in modern times, leads to nothing good. And the odds still are, it seems, very much against peace, love and respectful dialogue. So that's one thing that interests me. And second thing I'm going to talk about is humor. Uh, because now there is a very famous scene in Julius Caesar where Brutus is awake at night not knowing what to do. Should he side with those in favor of killing Julius Caesar or should he not? Now he is aware of a conspiracy and he must make up his mind. Uh, I think we can all imagine Brutus in his garden, because it is such an archetypical situation to us, I think. Now, um, does Brutus actually have any kind of choice? Because, or to put it in these words, what kind of uh, choice could Brutus make that we would accept? Now, if he joins, he becomes a murderer. And if he does, doesn't join, then what should he do? Should he try to stop it? Should he let history run its course? Should he wait and see what happens? Now, in that case, is it not quite possible that the members of the conspiracy will make him his next target? Because as Nico brought up, it was generally considered that Brutus was a very influential person. So the character of Brutus, apparently possibly quite historically accurately reported, suffers from insomnia. He cannot sleep, and this goes on throughout the length of the play. And just so you know, in case you're not very familiar with Julius Caesar, the length of the play is actually a few years. So this means that Julius, uh, uh, in Julius Caesar, uh, poor Brutus goes without sleep for many years. Um, now, <laughs> at the time of writing, I actually wrote here that um, I don't have that much experience of insomnia at the time of writing was actually last week <laughs> and it seems I personally forgot that I have quite small children and they reminded me of what it means to not sleep over the weekend. My younger son has some kind of issues with this so I was up from 3 to 5 a.m. 
this past night. And I can tell you, I really feel with Brutus if he goes without sleep for many years, as it is in the play. It's very noted in the script. Brutus talks about it. It's, it's said out loud by himself. And it does, you know, if you consider the context, create kind of a dark and quite even ominous setting around this most uh, famous of characters. So, how does Shakespeare juxtapose and play around with all of this beyond giving Brutus very deep and insightful things to say about life? Well, uh, he surrounds Brutus with characters that constantly sleep or keep falling asleep. Uh, and here we come to a point that really interests me. It is how Shakespeare treats and broadens situations and themes through using different approaches and a variation of style and genres, including humor. Now, throughout the length of the play, those characters that are closest to Brutus are almost constantly sleeping, all about to fall asleep. Now, right up to the very end, where we are in the middle of the Battle of Philippi, which, um, according to historical estimates, this battle might have had or involved up to 200,000 men. Now, so you can imagine that on one side, uh, it's, quite an, or it's quite an outrageous affair. We have a pair of Roman generals on each side fighting each other, 200,000 men, catapults, fires, you know, heads falling off, people screaming Sparta or Brutus, Octavius, you know, all this. Uh, now, in the middle of all of this, Shakespeare has written a character in Brutus' camp, close to Brutus himself, that turns up from nowhere and, as Brutus notes, has managed to sleep through it all. He has slept through the whole affair, only to be woken up at the very end by Brutus, so that he is summoned to help Brutus commit suicide, because Brutus, for all his Roman morals and ideals, cannot commit suicide alone or solely by himself. So to me, this all is quite a, a free-flowing, associative, even quite absurd humor. And it's almost as if, um, and I don't think I actually am quite far off in this, because I remember Nikov once saying that Shakespeare and his peers were quite uh, educated fellows who turned into entertainment and art. That it's, it's, I don't think I'm quite too far off when I think I could quite easily imagine, let's say, John Cleese, as Brutus, being surrounded by the rest of the Monty Python gang, rest in peace, all falling asleep around him, and uh, John Cleese going, for God's sake, man, wake up, it's time to fight. Or, you know, play me a tune on my instrument, as is the case in Caesar. Thy instrument, excuse me. So another quite ambiguous and potentially extremely comical sequence, which comes to mind, and it kind of intertwines with all of this, is where Cassius is writing letters addressed to Brutus in order to convince Brutus to join the conspiracy against Caesar. So Cassius decides he must convince Brutus and he must write these letters. So Cassius, uh, it says in the script, or he says himself, uh, decides he must write these letters in a variation of different handwritings so that his own is not recognizable and also so that it would seem that there would be a quite large number of different people trying to push Brutus into action. Now, uh, one can only guess why Cassius doesn't ask any of those that have 
already joined on his side to actually write these letters together with him. But anyway, um, if you imagine now a scene with Cassius sitting somewhere in ancient Rome in the light of a burning torch in a toga, perhaps shifting whatever he is writing with from left to right hand so that he can have a variation of handwriting, sipping wine, writing these letters, and what does he actually write? Where, what does he use for ink? Is it paper or pergament? You know, why is this not all of this terribly complicated to write all these letters? So it does anyway create quite a, 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 a to me it does kind of a, a musty and entertaining picture of this event. So these letters are written, then they are delivered to Brutus simply by leaving them from Brutus to find. Of course, Brutus does find them, he opens them, and what do these letters say? Brutus, thou art asleep. <laughs> so, to me, this kind of uh, quirky humor, even absurd humor, goes throughout this display, and I think in other works of Shakespeare as well, and it's quite exciting to have the possibility to work with this. Time. Now, Shakespeare is often said to be a master of the usage of time in his place. And Caesar, Julius Caesar, contains some striking examples. Now, when Brutus, in his garden, unsure of what to do, asks his servant Lucius what date it is, is it not the 1st of March, he asks, and Lucius is then sent away to find out, a few lines of texts are spoken, Lucius re-enters, and he states that 14 days have passed. In a few lines. 14 days. 14 days of Brutus not sleeping, thinking, what should he do? Now, quite interestingly, uh, just to point out, this little passage uh, is edited not only in many translations, but also, it seems, from what I could find in quite a few English editions as well, so that Brutus actually only asks or he seeks affirmation that is this not the night of the 14th and tomorrow is the 15th, the Ides of March, so that it's already just one night. But actually the first folio of William Shakespeare's work quite firmly suggests that this passage does, uh, or the, that this scene contains this passage of two weeks within it. Now, later on, Shakespeare is happy to jump over many years of political debate and intrigues, and between Act 4, 3, 4, and 5, he more or less jumps straight on from Brutus and Cassius fleeing from Rome to the Battle of Philippi, which is a few years later on. So Shakespeare works very interestingly with time, sometimes in a half a page it's two weeks, sometimes it's real time, sometimes it's few years. But there is, however, another aspect of time that in, in Julius Caesar, or perhaps a notion of what time is, which quite intrigues me. And it has more to do with the expectations we have of what time shall bring. Now, I'm speaking of children, or in the case of Julius Caesar, the absence of children. Now, in Julius Caesar, there are no children. It's only quickly in passing mentioned that Caesar wishes to have an heir, which he apparently does not have, but no other children are present or mentioned. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, this quite stands out in Shakespeare's production. 
if we at least think of all those other places where children and whole families are slaughtered in order to make one or the other family and so on king. So it's a very interesting combination of expectations, I think, because at least to me, it's quite easy to imagine these grand men that are very deeply rooted and very active within a very rigid patriarchal uh, structure to be very concerned with their personal family legacy, with the legacy of children and having an heir. So, the absence of children in Julius Caesar is a choice, adding to some effect. Now, it's almost as if the absence of children in Julius Caesar creates a space where the buffoonery of the characters within the play is actually emphasized. Now, instead of trying to clean up their own mess, each one only manages to add something to it, the result being a general slide into chaos. Driven by opportunism and populism, these characters create and drive forth a period of social unrest, an atmosphere of fear and the disintegration of society. And it's almost as if, in the absence of actual children, these grown men are allowed to regress into childhood themselves and start conducting themselves as unruly children. And quite a few of the dialogues towards the end of the play uh, actually quite easily are, are, are understandable this way if you compare them with any level of communication or behavior one would associate or expect of an intelligible adult, perhaps especially so of what one could or should expect of someone in a position of power where the decision that person makes has great influence on the lives of others. So as Cicero, as Cicero puts it within the play, uh, men may construe things after their fashion, clean from the purpose of the things themselves. Or, as Marcus Aurelius quite pompously, and this is not from Shakespeare's play, says, universe is transformation, life is opinion. To me, the way Shakespeare manages to combine many different topics, ideas, themes, and ways to look at them, genres, some which indeed are contradictory amongst themselves within any one frame of his work, is what to me makes Shakespeare most, most interesting, contemporary, and topical. Now, the themes and combinations he cultivates are often such that they from a position of a thematical heading, fall into sort of a gray scale in terms of the subject matter. I'll give you an example. Now, appalling though the characters and their actions in Julius Caesar may be, their motivations are quite often eerily recognizable to us, at least to me, and can said to be included at least jealousy, fear, being the subject of domination techniques, such as being made invisible, ridiculed, transferring blame, objectified, and so on. So on the one side, this behavior is oddly recognizable, or uncomfortably recognizable, and on the other side, it's quite appalling. So in this grayscale that Shakespeare paints, he does so with just enough light to make the contours visible to us, and leaving the colors, coloring of the characters up to the reader, or perhaps the spectator. Now in As You Like It, uh, written by Shakespeare around the same time or just after Julius Caesar, 
Shakespeare writes the very famous Seven Ages of Man speech, in which she describes the soldier as seeking the bubble reputation. Now, Julius Caesar repeatedly ignores all the warnings to beware the Ides of March. Brutus does not answer his wife Portia's call. Cassius, Cassius in the play finds no other way to help Brutus, but as he, Cassius says, discover to, you, to discover to yourself that of yourself which you yet know not of, which is quite manipulative. So it seems that the bubble reputation very much drives these characters inside Julius Caesar. Now, within the structure of the play, at first glance, there seems to be no alternative to this unstoppable descent into social fear and disintegration. And maybe that's, or perhaps that's just as well, uh, that's just all we know about the story or about history. But what if all of this was not the case? What if Julius Caesar would not actually set forth on the Ides of March that very day? What if Brutus did stop and did open up to his spouse about his insecurities? Or if Cassius could find another way to deal with his own personal jealousy? What if these characters would actually accept being forgotten? Could we actually imagine these most legendary of men retiring peacefully into their countryside houses and staying there, and leaving the running of affairs to those who actually will end up having to deal with uh, the consequences? Once these characters are gone, the next generation, which are so absent in the, the play Julius Caesar. And perhaps this could be one version of the happy end which Julius Caesar doesn't have, that these characters could stop, that they would be content, that they would stand aside, and they wouldn't think anymore that they would have to be at the center of it all, that they would be heard no more, as Shakespeare writes in Macbeth, which is much later on. So, if they are incapable to do otherwise, would the best way for these characters to clean up the mess they created be that they would indeed abstain from further action? This was Karl Alm, stage director for Julius Caesar. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare podcast produced by Klokrike Teatten and me, Ida Hendriksson, with sound by the amazing Christian Ekholm, who's also designed the sound and composed all of the music for this production of Julius Caesar. You can follow Klokrike Teatten on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Stay safe and see you at the theatre.